This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show neuropsychologist and the author of Clearing the Fog, Jim Jackson. Now, this was a unique conversation for a multitude of reasons. Firstly, Jim's book, Clearing the Fog, discusses the impact of long COVID, especially on cognition. And as you will hear, it mimics TBI. So his book not only identifies the issues, but also brings solutions. Another interesting thing about this discussion was, as you will hear, halfway through, Jim had a mental health emergency that he had to respond to. So this conversation was actually broken up about a month apart. So there may be some overlap, but it was also a unique momentary insight into the critical area of psychology and psychiatry. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jim Jackson. Enjoy. Well, Jim, I want to start off by saying firstly, thank you to Mark Watson for connecting us and we'll get into how your paths meet um, or met and how you use some of his tools with the people that you work with now. But also, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Great to be with you. Really looking forward to this conversation. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? 
you know, a week ago, if you would have talked to me, I was uh, at the beach in South Carolina, and, and it was really hot. It's still hot, but I'm in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee today. Beautiful. Any uh, shark attacks in, in the Carolinas when you were there? I know the last couple of times I've been there, down the beach with people getting murdered, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay out of the water today. You know, the only uh, the only sea life that we saw um, was a few dolphins, and then I managed to catch a stingray, and uh, that, that was exciting. I, you know, I love fishing. I like catching. I do a lot of fishing, not much catching. Um, I hooked something, and it felt really big, and I was really excited. I was in the surf with a, with a kind of a small pole, and um, it got closer and closer. The rod was bending and all of that. And, and I, I lifted it out of the water. It was a baby stingray. So I think the way it was shaped um, made it kind of resist the water a little bit. So it, it felt a lot bigger than it was. I was really disappointed, but uh, no shark attacks. Okay, good to hear. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, kind of in the southwestern part of the state. And then as a, as a little boy, um, moved our family's longtime hometown of Portage. Uh, somebody in our family has lived there since 1830 or 40, I think, long time. So I grew up in Portage, Michigan, um, small town in the southwestern corner, um, Good people, uh, very Midwestern, surrounded by lakes. Uh, fishing is already a theme, I think, in this interview. I grew up fishing, uh, grew up playing sports, um, was a really curious kid, um, raised by my parents. My dad, a salesman, my mom, my dad, Jim, my mom, Kathy, had a, a daycare business. So we had kids in the house all the time. And uh, I watched my mom and dad really lovingly care for people in our neighborhood, uh, in our life. And I think in some ways they were planting the seeds without knowing it of a career for me, engaging people and helping people, you know, witnessing their their caring and, and generosity, transitioning into a field where I would be caring for people um, turned out to be really natural. I went to college really wanted to be a sportscaster. That was that was plan number one. And um, you had to be proficient at the time, probably still now, at using a camera. You, you had to know how to edit footage, all of that. And if all I had to do was talk on air, I was great. But back in the, back in the studio, I was horrible. And uh, I quickly thought, you know, if I need to be proficient as an engineer, as a tape splicer, as a cameraman, this is not the job for me. So I changed my major to general studies, actually, which is kind of like nothing. You know, I had a little bit of a lot, got into graduate school, uh, kind of by the skin of my teeth. And um, once I got there, really was able to thrive, um, wound up about 22 years ago at Vanderbilt Medical Center. And we've been here in Nashville, my wife, Michelle, our three kids, um, Colin, Caroline, and Carson, and now our three pets, a dog, Olive, uh, a dog, Waffles, and then a cat. I usually forget to mention the cat. The cat's being mentioned today. Try not to ignore the cat. So um, we love being in, uh, in Tennessee. Michigan is lovely. I think if I never had left, um, I would still be there. But once you move south, 
and you realize that you don't have to endure seven months of winter, five months of winter, six months of winter, um, you realize pretty quickly, at least I did, gosh, I don't think I can go back. And that's kind of what happened to me. So happy to be here um, in the Mid-South. Yeah, we have to endure seven weeks of winter here in Florida. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's probably the most beautiful time of the year, to be honest, because there's blue skies and sun, but it's cooler. Yeah, absolutely. So just going back with this kind of lens that you had early life, I've talked about this before. I grew up on a farm. My dad was a horse vet, and we had anyone from gypsies to to extended royalty and everyone in between come through our doors. And, and it gave you this amazing you know perspective of the spectrum of the human being some at that moment maybe are not the nicest kindest people and then others were and so you realize it's not about socioeconomic or, or race or religion it's just just good people you had this this kind of lens yourself with uh, the school what is your perspective and this is an apolitical conversation but there appears to be a lot of division and pigeonholing currently the last few years which spans both both presidencies what is your perspective from a psychologist's point of view of what is happening and how do we go back to that unification that community element again i, I am hugely worried about it i mean i share the vantage point that, that you highlighted that was my experience growing up too that we encountered people of all sorts and um recognize that you know you engage people as people um and, and I think we are hugely divided. Things are so divisive. What the, what the cause of that is, uh, you know, hard, hard to say, but, but I think it's hard to over exaggerate. It's hard to overstate how big that problem is, right? We're so siloed. Um, it's one reason that when we raised our kids, uh, we wanted to make sure we traveled a lot. It's one reason when uh, I hire people on my team at Vanderbilt, I try to hire people who love to travel because um, I feel like travel is something where you get out of your comfort zone and you realize, oh my gosh, these stereotypes that I held on to, they're really not true, right? They're not true. Um, but but I think increasingly we are hunkered down. We're kind of in our bunkers and uh, we congregate with people that look like us, that think like us, um, people with, uh, with a particular kind of politics or moving from blue states to red, from red states to blue. And, and I think it's a big problem. And I think the onus is on us um, as, as leaders, uh, you know, for me as a psychologist in healthcare, the onus is on us to try to create a change, right? To try to make sure that we are pushing against the currents culturally in terms of how we engage people and modeling for other people how to do that. Because I think it's a huge problem, I agree. One more kind of tangent before we get into your journey into psychology. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. There's a great story. I'm blanking on his name. Who's the gentleman that started Apple? Oh, Steve Jobs. Thank you. Steve Jobs. I don't know why that fell out of my head then. That he was at college, kind of fumbling around trying to work out what he wanted to do. And he took a calligraphy class. And ultimately, that became the very first uh, font that you could do on a computer. When you look back now, where you are with the lens today... Were there elements of your sports journalism that you did do that carried over into your career today? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, one thing um, one thing that was true of me in my sports journalism is I was really enthusiastic, right? I was a big cheerleader, really enthusiastic, and that has uh, that has continued. Uh, sometimes people tell me 
tone it down a little bit, right? I've been accused at times of um, toxic positivity uh, <laughs> on a serious note. Of, I have to. <laughs> being too positive, right? Yeah. And um, and and I, I try to take that to heart. But that cheerleading, that coaching, that enthusiasm, uh, for better or worse, that's who I am. And I think that's grounded in that experience of, of being a sports journalist for a for a minute. Yeah, it's funny. I've only had that once and I was like, I don't even know what this term is. And then I was thinking, okay, can you imagine if it was Jesus or Buddha or, you know, whoever, Krishna, and be like, oh God, it's so annoying. Can you stop being so positive? That's kind of the point. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're trying to encourage goodness and community in the world. That's what positivity is. And the fact that some people call it toxic and I get empty positivity, you know, what they call it virtue signaling. That's different, but someone who's just positive, that should never be discouraged. Yeah, you know, the first time I ever heard the term, I, I, I'm on Twitter and I have a little bit of a love-hate with Twitter. Uh, it depends, but but it can be a contentious place. And I think it was about a year ago um, at the beach, I was tweeting, and and I, I won't get this exactly right, but I but I made a tweet, if that's how you say it, that, that basically said, you are more than your disease, right? I work with people with chronic illness a lot, and it said, you're more than your chronic illness. Uh, remember, you are so much more than your chronic illness. And somebody responded and said, "That that's gaslighting. That's toxic positivity. And, and truly, um, I had a hard time wrapping my head around that uh, because I do believe, uh, you know, I don't want to minimize people at all. I, I don't want to minimize their struggle. But I do believe that it's important for us to communicate the message to people that whatever your label, whatever your struggle, you are far more than that. You know, let's not reduce you to your occupation. Let's not reduce you to um, your economic status. Let's not reduce you to your chronic illness. You're far more than that. That's an observation I made as a firefighter, EMT, and then paramedic is Sometimes you would see people, it was almost that their disease, their diagnosis was an identity. And, and there was always a statistic. Oh, I'm one in, you know, only only 10 in a million have this thing that I have. What have you seen about that right. element? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a needle that we work on threading every day. And that needle is how do you find a way to own your story? Because on the one hand, I really want to affirm that, right? How do you find a way to own your story but not own it too much, right? How do you own it without becoming, allowing it to become this all-encompassing, all-arching narrative that defines you, and and when it defines you, it really limits you. So in the support groups we lead, in the individual therapy I do, this is a constant conversation, right? Like you've got long COVID now, you've got PTSD now, you've got depression now, whatever it is, Yes, let's be honest about it. Let's be vulnerable about it. Let's acknowledge it. And um, let's recognize that you can have a life that is far bigger than that thing, right? Because if if you become the sum total of that thing, um, it is limiting and it is unhelpful. So owning on the one hand and casting a big vision on the other hand, that's the dance that I try to help patients do. So you were doing these kind of general studies. What was it that took you into the world of psychology initially? So great. It's a great question. Um, I took a class in college. Uh, you know, I had uh, I had entered college with a great academic record and and uh, 
I wouldn't say with a lot of fanfare, but with a lot of enthusiasm, uh, got some got some credits because I'd taken some advanced placement tests and all of that. And and I burned through that goodwill with bad grades pretty fast. And by the time I was um, in my final semester before graduation, I didn't quite know what to do. But I took this psychology course, just one. And um, it, it, it was a lot about uh, how people change. It was a lot about how people grow. And something about it really hooked me. I had no idea what I was going to do after college, after moving off of this journalism major. But something about psychology really resonated. And um, it was a little like, you know, I pulled the thread and, and just kept on pulling, kind of followed it. And um, that propelled me to graduate school. And once I got to graduate school, frankly, um, I met my wife, uh, met her, and then we got married a couple years later. But she was organized. She was disciplined. She was a lot of things that I wasn't, actually. And um, under her guidance and maybe even tutelage, um, she gave me some railroad tracks to kind of run on, so to speak. And I was off to the races, you know, loving helping people and um, realizing that it was really natural for me. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that's everybody's experience with a career, but my experience is, you know, you know you're doing the right thing, um, what you're called to do, what you're built to do, if that's the way people want to think about it, when it is um, a little bit effortless, you know, when you're not having to knock that door down, when it feels like you're in that state of flow. And for me, that's how psychology has really felt. You know, I've been much of the time in this flow state where things just happen. It's really natural. You know, you learn techniques and you learn tools just as you did in your career. But the passion is there. And many days um, it doesn't feel like working. Now, now that isn't always true, right? There are hard days and there are big challenges. But um, but I feel really blessed to love what I do. And, and I think... Um, Part of the thing that's great about the, the world of clinical psychology is um, you work hard to impact people and in real time, often you see the results, right? And they're so gratifying and um, seeing people change and grow and improve, um, that gives you the added motivation to get back in the ring and do it again and again and again and again. And that's kind of been my story. Since I started this podcast and been, you know, went down this journey myself, there have definitely been some very pivotal aha moments. So one of them, for example, the kind of suicide crisis that we have in our profession was rearing its head around the time I began this. So initially I'm going, oh, you know, a lot of people are thinking, oh, it's what we see. You know, this is why we're, we're doing this. And then someone educates you, well, actually, let's bring in childhood trauma. And it's, it's add layers, not it's a single thing, but you start becoming more and more nuanced. And then asking the question and getting the courageous vulnerability of so many people that have come on here, you realize just how many people wearing a uniform have significant childhood trauma, have, you know, a very high ACE score. So what, what were some of the aha moments as you progressed through your career, maybe deviating from the uh, the academic side and seeing the real world? Yeah, um, you know, there have been so many. Um uh, early in my career, I worked at a worked at a rural hospital in um, in in Michigan, in a tiny town in Michigan. And um, you have patients that that you remember, right? You know that that you recall. And um, one of them um, 
had lost a child tragically and had developed particularly profound PTSD. And um, PTSD has been a big interest area of mine, both clinically and, and academically. I publish on it, do research, et cetera. And um, before I saw this man, you know, so dear and really brave, but really wrecked by um, the trauma that he endured, before I saw him, um, you know, PTSD was a very academic kind of a term for me. You know, it was a it was a, a phrase on a page, if you will, something that happened only to soldiers, if you will. And um, seeing the real world impact of this uh, in the life of a man who before uh, had been perfectly high functioning, right? His life had been going fine and he literally... You know, it was like he got a clothesline. If you remember the old pro wrestling matches, right? He got a clothesline. Suddenly he's on his back. Um, I remember that uh, that event kind of stealing in me, building in me a passion and a desire to learn more, you know, to help people like this gentleman um, who really was a victim, right? Um, so that was that was one moment that I remember really well. Um, there have been so many others in my in my 20 some years at Vanderbilt, um, the support groups that I have led have been really impacting that way also. I would say early on in the work that we did, um, it was very much up in the air whether we would continue this support group program. We just started it, now it's very large. And uh, early on, uh, I had an encounter with a patient and it was obvious that his life was really improving. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is working, right? It's worth the effort. So those are two examples, but there are many, many more. Now with that definition of PTSD on a page with a soldier, um, as you come across people in, you know, whether it's uniform, whether it's medical, whether it's some sort of profession where there is acute, obvious trauma, did you start seeing the same thing as I was seeing through a microphone here with with the the impact of unaddressed childhood trauma being a contributing factor amplified by these acute traumas in the job? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did a um, we did a study um, many years ago now, and we approached patients in the intensive care unit, asked them about PTSD. But before we did that, um, we gave them a, a, a tool, a test called the TLEQ, and that's called the Trauma Life Events Checklist questionnaire, trauma life events questionnaire, TLEQ. And, and in that questionnaire, you basically say, I'm going to list some traumas. Have you been exposed to them? And then you just go down the list. Hit by lightning, you know, from obscure to uh, attacked by a dog to robbed to sexually abused to, you know, the whole nine yards. And um, the amount of items that people were endorsing on that checklist would really stop you in your tracks, right? And there were there were more than a few times when one of my one of my colleagues, not a psychologist but a research coordinator, one of my colleagues would be in the ICU administering this checklist to someone that is what's your trauma history and I would get a call saying, "Jim, there's a patient here breaking down, right? Like they're overcome with emotion. We asked them about their trauma history and they just came undone. You know, it was overwhelming to them. So I think your point is really well taken, which is um, there's overwhelming 
early trauma, childhood trauma that people have. That's true, certainly, for first responders. It's true for um, medically traumatized patients that I see. It is clearly a risk factor for the development of PTSD, but, but even in people who don't develop PTSD, I think it's a problem that is really overlooked. And I think part of the problem in, in my way of thinking, and I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs and I have great affinity for veterans. And I think for a long time, people have defined trauma as combat trauma, right? Like that's what people think of. And I think we need to be really thoughtful and recognize trauma comes in a lot of shapes and sizes. It comes in a lot of packages. And that's not only combat trauma, it's not only abuse, it's so many other things that make people vulnerable to developing PTSD when they have that next trauma down the road. Well, I know you worked in the ICU for quite a while. One of my friends is a former firefighter and she had a, a very bad traffic accident just driving to a station. She got rear-ended by a, a SUV. I think it was something crazy, like 80 miles an hour. Yeah. But she'd already gone into nursing, so she was able to carry on that. And in our conversation, she talked about ICU psychosis, which is, I've only heard that term a couple of times. I am aware completely, though, of the pseudo-psychosis that sleep-deprived first responders like myself you know, have in as well. So talk to me at first about ICU psychosis and what are the contributing factors to it? Yeah, it's been a while since I've heard that term, actually. That that term used to be very much in vogue and, and we saw it as a little bit of a problem. Our research group did and others did. And um, most people now use the term delirium uh, to mean what ICU psychosis meant. And when we think of delirium in the ICU, we think of a situation where, where someone has an acute change in their consciousness, typically characterized by things like inattention, uh, sometimes disorientation to reality, um, sometimes frank psychotic symptoms. And the concern with delirium as it relates to PTSD is that often people who are delirious in that delirious state, they distort things a lot. So they have memories they're real memories to them, but but in in fact they're memories of delusions, right? So we often have we often have patients who someone tries to uh, place a catheter in them in the ICU, and their memory of that is someone touched me inappropriately. They tried to sexually assault me. Someone delirious in the ICU is taken to neuroimaging. They get an MRI, and they're convinced that someone was trying to um, move them into an oven, right? Because, because the entrance to an MRI maybe looks a little like an oven, right? So often what happens is people leave the ICU, their delirium is gone, but these delusional memories have been literally imprinted, if you will, and they are, they are normal, they're in their right mind, but they still think, Oh my gosh, it seems like someone tried to sexually assault me. It seems like someone tried to put me in an oven. I don't think that could have happened, but it feels like it did. And um, that's a source of really profound distress for people, often long after the fact. Now, the way Steph was describing it, and it makes perfect sense to me because I've done a, a deep, deep dive into sleep medicine because of, you know, we'll get to that in a minute, but I believe it's the nucleus of a lot of things that we suffer from in first responder professions. But when you think of just even a regular um, hospital room, especially an ICU, 
there's lights, there's pings, there's there's coming in for for vitals checks, um, and so you can see how disrupted the sleep is. Is that a, a contributing factor to the psychosis or delirium that we're talking about? Yeah, it's a huge problem, and and that has led to um, to a lot of adaptations in ICUs. They're part of a program called the ABCDEF bundle, and basically this. This bundled approach to care in the ICU involves things like, let's put a clock in every person's room, right? Let's try to have natural light in the room if we can. Let's try to sedate people as little as we can so that they're aware of their circumstances. Because I would argue being aware of your circumstances, even if that's upsetting, that's better than being constantly in this bizarre unnatural, half-away, half-asleep sort of a state, right? Um, for a long time, we thought that loading people up is the best way to say it heavily on uh, antipsychotics, on sedatives in the ICU. For a long time, we thought that was a humane approach to care because it would cause them not to remember what was going on. In fact, we have realized um you know, you can put someone to sleep under under sedatives, but not really, right? Like that's not the quality of sleep that you want, right? And um, you can knock them out, that's true, um, but that doesn't mean they won't remember anything. That often means they'll remember things that actually didn't happen, right? So this, um, so this paradigm shift is let's emphasize quality sleep if if we can as aggressively as we can in the ICU because it's a cornerstone. Um, let's highlight the difference between day and night. Let's do reality testing as much as we can. Let's sedate people as minimally and let's get them up and aware and active if we can. And the hope is that this way of thinking will lead to better outcomes. I, it seems to be the case. I think that's one of the most irresponsible elements of medicine is describing a lot of these drugs as sleep medicine. Yes. Because you hear yourself and all the other people I had on the show that understand this from Benadryl through to the extreme ones, and you understand that it's a sedative. You're, you're unconscious. You're not actually getting that quality of sleep. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think people are well-meaning. I mean, thankfully, um, thankfully, I, I, I think the the times you know they're a changing um but uh but it's taken a long time to get there and um i think the changes that we've made in in large academic medical centers let's say to to think differently about sleep to um be more thoughtful to be more proactive more aggressive in caring for people and keeping them oriented to time and place etc uh, those those changes are taking a long time to trickle down into the community. So, you know, if you go to a large hospital, um, you probably will get state-of-the-art ICU care. But if you're in some little town somewhere, too often the tendency is we're gonna we're gonna knock you out. And um one unfortunate thing that happened during COVID, uh, in the early days of COVID especially, is um we reverted in the ICU back to old ways of caring for people um, where we would heavily sedate patients. And um, and that was a major step backwards. Uh, another major step backwards, I think, was in the early days of COVID we had, and, and they were well-intended, but we had really restrictive visitation policies, right? Still do in some hospitals. 
And um, I think that reflects such a misunderstanding because as you know very well, um, family is the crux of a good outcome and a good recovery, right? So the, the, the thought that I'm going to potentially die in the ICU on a ventilator without any of my family around, right? For some people, that's a fate literally worse than death, right? Uh, to be there without your family. Um, so, um, you know, we need to rethink a lot. We're making some progress. We need to make more progress. Well, I want to get to obviously the COVID element in a second because we're going to talk about long COVID and a lot of your work now. Just before we do, one last area in the world of sleep deprivation. There are, you know, the the suicide epidemic is multifaceted. I would argue the homicide epidemic probably parallels that and also a lot of similar contributing factors. Um, but so you have, excuse me, you have the unaddressed childhood trauma. I think childhood trauma addressed become, you know, makes us better at what we do, especially in our professions. You yes. have, you know, organizational stress. You have the acute traumas that we do see, you know, do see and have to do. Um, but my community works 24 hours straight. Um, they, at the moment, are working 56 hours a week. A lot of them are understaffed, so they're being forced to work an extra shift, which is now 80 hours a week. So huge circadian, not, not even disruption, like an absence of sleep for 10, 20, 30 years. Talk to me about, through your eyes, the, the correlation between sleep deprivation and some of the mental health issues that we've been seeing. I think it's a huge problem. I mean, I think for too often, sleep has been an afterthought. And I think I think part of the problem is a cultural one. And, and this is a tough nut to crack, but I think it's a problem. And that is, I think um, we valorize and we honor, right, especially among men, the fact that, gosh, I was able to go 24 hours without sleep. I was able to go 48 hours, you know, that idea of being tough, strong, sturdy, defined as how many bad things can I endure, right? That I shouldn't have to endure. Like how, how much can I endure? The the more, the more of a man I am, right? And um and I think we need to really move away from that. And and I think one way to move away from it is not a simple thing, but one way to move away from it is for people to be vulnerable and say, gosh, I, you know what? I'm actually struggling, right? Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, right? If you prick me, I'm going to bleed, right? I, I wish people would find a way to be a little more vulnerable. No one wants to be the first one, unfortunately, to raise their hand and say, you know, being up for 48 hours isn't really working for me, right? Like no one wants to be the first one to do that, right? Um, but, but the truth is, um, we're human, right? We're not built to do that. We're not designed to do that. It's going to take a toll, um, and and I think it does. So it, it needs to change. And with mental health specifically, the detriment of not sleeping? It, it's a huge problem. Um, I mean, it, it not only is problematic physiologically, but I think there are a lot of other consequences, right? So um, it leads to problems with inattention. It leads to problems with short-term memory. It leads to problems with executive functioning. It, it leads to simple things like, I'm not sleeping, so maybe I'm drinking more, right? Because when I do sleep, I want to really sleep. Or um, I'm not sleeping, so I'm really ornery with my wife. And now we've got a conflict that we didn't have before, which contributes to me sleeping even a little less. Or, uh, you know, it's all connected. 
And, um, and, and I think it's a huge problem. I mean, one thing we've learned recently is that there are these cumulative effects of not sleeping, right? And those lead to heightened risk of things like Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So I, I think if there's one area that we could target um, that might be low-hanging fruit, right? Like we could we could do something with this, right? The benefits of addressing it would be multifaceted and far-reaching. I think if we could target one area, sleep would be near the top of the list. Yeah, I agree completely. I'm actually in the process with, um, I don't know if you heard of IHMC, the research organization. Yeah, I have. They, so they're actually doing it. Um, very long story, very short. We had two suicides in the county, uh, the fire department right where I live, and a local businessman put up some money to fund them to do a study on human performance. And it's funny, the first interaction, they were like, that's not human performance <laughs> when, we, when the, the chief laid out how they currently do it. So I'm hoping that's going to actually give data to get people to realize not only, yes, you are killing your people, but also it's a false economy. If you invest in your people, they will have longevity, they will perform at a higher level, and you would actually save money, not not waste money. Yeah, I think it highlights again, um, you know, in, in this culture, in this workforce, how often we view people as disposable assets, if you will, right? We're going to, I think of it in the context of football here in Nashville, Derrick Henry is the Tennessee Titans great running back, right? And and um, in the NFL, if you're a running back these days, the idea is I'm going to wear you out in three or four years. I'm going to cash you off and move on to the next guy. And um, that model might be fine in the NFL. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, it's not the model that we want to use with physicians. It's not the model we want to use with EMTs or first responders. It's not the model we want to use with psychologists. Um, but all too often, I think that's the model, right? We're going to use you up and wear you out. And then when you raise your hand and say, you know, I'm really struggling, um, we're going to dismiss you and call you a baby and find somebody else. Uh, so that model needs to change. Well, with that vulnerability, I've had some incredibly high performing, extremely dangerous men and women on the show and yeah. just blown away by the courage of their vulnerability. But I've talked about this a lot. When you and I were young, masculinity was kind of played, portrayed as James Bond, Rambo, right. John Wayne, right. and we were yes. sold a very two-dimensional story. How do you think that's factored into a lot of our men struggling today? And I'll say men specifically in this example. Yeah, I, I think it's a huge problem. I mean, I really do think whether people consciously are aware of it or not, um, this is what is encouraged in the culture, right? Be a man, defined not as be gentle, be thoughtful, be kind, but be a man as in, you know, grit your teeth and bear it, right? Push through. Uh, and, and I think it's a problem. Uh, I have pushed back against that in my own life a lot. Um, I, uh, I was an athlete way back in the day. I wrestled in college. I'm far removed from that, right? My son's a, a college wrestler, and I will not get on the mat with him. That's the last thing that I want to do. But but I, I have come to realize that masculinity is is much more nuanced, right? It's much more nuanced than that. And for me, that point of vulnerability has, has had a lot to do with um, sharing my own mental health journey um, about five years ago. I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. It, it developed really quite out of the blue in a real stressful season in my life. And um, initially, 
I didn't want to tell a soul about it. I mean, I got the diagnosis, of course, and my wife knew about it. And uh, I really withdrew from a lot of close friends in my life because I didn't want to tell them my story, right? I didn't want to take my mask off. And um, when I think about the fact that I talk about it pretty easily now on podcasts and in the book that I wrote, um, there was a time when I wouldn't have done that in a million years. So, you know, all of us have our own story. We have our own vulnerabilities. But but learning to tell that story with courage and learning not to be ashamed of the fact that we're human, I think is really, really important. I've heard this come up a lot, that the prevalence of OCD is a lot more common than people think. And I think you know most of us are like, oh, is that when you have to do the light switch 20 times before you leave your house? But there's obviously a, a spectrum within that diagnosis. When you look back, all the way back to the beginning, you know, what were some of the contributing factors that, that you think uh, created this, this diagnosis? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I had likely had some tendencies, if you, if you will, um, that dated way back. But at the time, um, at the time of my diagnosis, there were a couple things that were happening. One, um, we had two kids in private school, and it was really expensive. And and I was working an extra job. I was engaging in all these side hustles to try to keep that going, trying to bring in some extra income. Um, I was battling with OCD, or excuse me, with diverticulitis. Um, and I was on antibiotic round number nine or 10, refusing to get surgery, wanting to tough it out. So interestingly, in some ways, this, this curse, if you will, of, man, I need to be a man, right? I, you know, I need to earn a lot of money so I can send my kids to private school. I need to tough this out without getting surgery, right? Um, those were ironically some of the traits, I think, that, um, that created the conditions that my OCD kind of developed in. You know, I was I was struggling in this stressful situation and not wanting to ask for help. Uh, today, uh, I think if the situation existed as it did in 2018, I would raise my hand, right? I would ask for help. I would take myself out of the game, whatever. I, I know better. But at the time, I was really stubborn and I was proud. Um, I, uh, I didn't want to be vulnerable about my own um, weaknesses. And um, I think there's a lesson in that, right? Like we can only operate that way so much. At a certain point, there really is a breaking point. And I think that breaking point for me was developing OCD. And, um, and I didn't want it. I don't want it. I'd rather not have it. But, um, but one thing I have learned and, and one way in which it has been a gift to me is it has taught me, wow, you can coexist with really hard things that you don't want. And, um, and that's been a useful message um, to reiterate and to share and to honor with the long COVID patients I work with because they have something they don't want, long COVID. And they got it out of the blue, as I did, my OCD. And it's not necessarily going away. So um, if we can find a way to highlight for people, you know what, we want your symptoms to go away, but they don't have to go away for you to be okay. That's a really powerful message. Well, we have the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and obviously there's another phrase, the gut brain. Um, it seems like there's a, a pretty solid interaction between you know, our, our psychology and our physiology. When you look back now, you, was there um, an element you think of anxiety, depression, whatever was going on in the manifestation in your gut? 
I think there's no doubt. And, um, you know, when you look at diverticulitis, um, that's the prototypic example of inflammation, right? And we know that inflammation is, is really harmful. Um, and, um, and in my case, it was just perpetuated again and again and again and again. And, and I think, um, I think diet often is the last thing that we think of when we think of mental health concerns, right? I mean, very often, um, you think mental health, hey, I'm going to take a quick trip to the psychiatrist, I'm going to, I'm going to get medicated for my anxiety, depression, whatever. And, and medication plays a role, no doubt. But I think uh, there's a there's a movement, there's a groundswell of interest now in the idea that perhaps diet is a lot more fundamental than we think in mental health. And I think that's a really great trend. You know, the idea that, um, hey, uh, you know, here's a here's a jar of antidepressants, take two a day and then call me in the morning. You know, that's sort of a model. I think we need to move away from that. Well, I, I promise we're going to get to COVID in a sec, but you keep sending me oh, down good. these other rabbit holes, which are beautiful. Before we get there, because it is a contributing factor to the outcome yeah. of COVID anyway, totally. talk to me about, again, through your lens, mental health and the obesity crisis. Yeah, I uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, was, I was recently uh, on, on Facebook or LinkedIn somewhere. I'm on social media too much. And... Um, there was a picture, uh, again, I'm no expert on this, but there was a picture, this is a typical day at the beach in know, 1967 or something, and then they put next to that, right, this is a picture at the beach in 2022 or 2023, and um, people really look different, right? They looked really different, and they do. And um, I think uh, there's no doubt that the obesity crisis manifests in so many different ways. Um, you know, one of those is um, it leads to things like type two diabetes that in turn leads to depression, right? That in turn leads to cognitive problems. I, I think it's a huge problem. And I think um, culturally too often um, we're interested in shortcuts, right? Like we're interested in shortcuts. I went to see a psychologist recently. I've gained some weight in recent years. I'm trying to lose it. And um She's an expert in weight management, if you will. And so I went to see her. And um, that first session, I thought, you know, hopefully you're going to give me some quick tips and tricks and I'm going to use them and and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to lose a lot of weight. And she said, um, actually, I'd like to talk about your childhood. And I was like, why are we doing that? Right. Like, why are we doing that? I, I just want some tools. I want some tricks. And, and she said, you know, we can give you some tools and tricks, but that's not how you're going to make lasting change, right? You're going to have to lean into things. So Robert Frost famously said, the only way around is through. And I think when it comes to behavior change, when it comes to weight loss, when it comes to making new habits, breaking old ones, the only way around is through. And I think we need to reinforce that with our patients, with our children, with ourselves, that we are doing everybody a disservice if we think there's a quick fix. There's no quick fix. I think if I'm if I'm getting it right, Winston Churchill said, "If you're going through hell, keep going." And I, I agree completely. You know, it sucks, but the, you know, 
if you retreat, it's only going to get worse. If you curl into a ball, it's only going to get worse. But there will be the end if you if you keep moving forward. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think um, one thing that is important to reinforce in patients, and we do this at every turn, is A, the only way around is through, and B, um, you've got more grit and metal than you think you have, right? Like we can support you and you can get through a lot of things that frankly, you probably don't think you can get through. Like you're stronger than you know, and um, you're stronger than you know, and this is the key point for psychologists, and I'm gonna be with you on this journey. And, And that's a potent combination, those two things. Absolutely. Well, let's get to COVID then. Talk to me about, you know, through your eyes, the lead up, and then your experience of the actual pandemic, and then we'll obviously get into long COVID and the patients that you had after that. So um, for years at Vanderbilt, um, my research group, the the Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and and Survivorship Center, the SIP Center, we had been working with survivors of intensive care. Um, They were there for various reasons, sepsis, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, multiple organ failure, range of things. So we had been working with them after they left the ICU. We had a we had a research program. Um, we had a, a network of support groups. We had a, a a range of of initiatives designed to help them. And when COVID became a concern, I thought and others thought, you know, it seems like these patients are going to have the same sorts of problems, especially if they're in the ICU with COVID. They're going to have the same sorts of problems that our ICU survivors have generally. So so let's make sure that we target COVID ICU survivors. And we did that in our in our programming. We did. We started enrolling them in our studies and and they started coming. If you use the field of dreams model, if you build it, they'll come. They started coming. And then people started saying, you know, I was in the hospital with COVID. I was never in the ICU, but I was in the hospital with COVID. Could you see me too in your clinic? So we said, yeah, we can see you too. And then people started saying, well, I had COVID. I was never in the hospital. I was never in the ICU, but you work with COVID patients in the hospital, in the ICU. Maybe you can work with me. And so suddenly things just kind of expanded. And before you knew it, um, we were drinking out of a fire hose. You know, we were leading um, countless support groups for long COVID survivors, the majority of whom had never been in the ICU. We were studying um, cognitive training applications for COVID survivors, most of whom had never been in the ICU. I was seeing people in my clinic, many of whom had never been in the ICU. And um, we started making an impact and things just kind of continued from there. I, I think what happened when the pandemic emerged was that there were a lot of places that didn't have any programming and they were having to build it from scratch, if you will. And we already had this robust infrastructure just designed for something else. And we just had to tweak it a little bit. And so it's been a great journey um, engaging, supporting, caring for long COVID patients, um, many of whom are marginalized, many of whom are dismissed by the medical establishment. Um, It's been one of the great privileges of my life personally and professionally to really care for and walk with these patients. Now, you mentioned somewhere in ICU, somewhere in hospital, somewhere at home. 
were all of them at least ill with the virus? Or did you even have They people? were. They okay. were all at least ill. Um, I think early on, I thought, we thought, that um, that there would be a clear dose-response relationship between kind of how ill you are here and what your outcomes are down here. And uh, it is true, if you look at studies of, of long COVID, generally people who were in the ICU with COVID, they fare worse than people who were just a little bit sick in the community, right? That's not, that's not surprising. But um, I think what did surprise me and, and probably others was the extent to which a lot of people who were never very ill um, have really been devastated by long COVID symptoms. So we see some people with really striking cognitive problems with what I would call brain injuries who were never very sick with COVID. Um, we see people with, I think, meaningful symptoms of PTSD who were never very ill with COVID. So, um, so that's been a great insight, one we've been aware of now for a few years. And um, it's been a, a challenge for patients because often their families say, sometimes their doctors say, eh, you never were really very sick, right? Like, what are you complaining about exactly? You were never very sick. But there have been a number of studies, including some using neuroimaging, um, using advanced technologies with hard outcomes that have shown that people um, who were never very sick with long COVID often have brain changes, often have atrophy, often have really substantial problems. And they're often the ones that are in a place of greatest need because they're the ones that people are the most skeptical about. So what were the spectrum of symptoms that people were reporting? Um, you know, everything from with, with acute COVID, everything from, um, uh, you know, I was a little fatigued to, uh, I was on, on the couch for two or three days to, I had a fever to, I lost my sense of taste and smell classic sorts of symptoms that people reported on the front end. Um, uh, when we see patients in our clinic and our support groups, um, their symptoms really fall into three areas, uh, Cognitive, uh, those cognitive symptoms involve attention, executive functioning, memory problems, processing speed. Those would be the main ones. Um, mental health complaints, often those involve anxiety, depression, sometimes OCD, often PTSD. And then in the physical realm, as you know, there are literally, you know, 90 or 100 different symptoms people report. But the, the one that is far and away the most common is fatigue. So fatigue brain fog or brain injury, mental health concerns. That's the that's the unholy trifecta is, is what I like to call it. The unholy trinity. So it seemed like the the majority um of people who are very, very ill, there were comorbidities as well. And this is the problem, as you talked about silos and bunkers earlier. Well, everyone divided into World War One trenches and it was either hundred percent one way, hundred percent the other. To me, it was a very real virus. Um, you know, vulnerable populations include people that are listening to this that are sleep deprived and immune compromised. But then you obviously had, you know, the obesity, diabetic, et cetera. What elements of underlying health you think contributed to the long COVID side? It's complicated. Um, you know, there was an interesting study that, that came out some time ago, somewhat recently, 
And it showed that if you had a history of traumatic brain injury, you were more likely to have symptoms of long COVID, let's say. And um, that's a vulnerability that I wouldn't have expected necessarily would be reflected in an increased risk of long COVID. Um, there are a lot of studies that have demonstrated that if you have um, pre-existing mental health concerns, you're more likely to develop long COVID. What that relationship is, what the nature of that is, I think is complicated. Um, we certainly see a lot of people who were high functioning, they were thriving, they were uh, hitting on all cylinders, um, attorneys, physicians, nurses, engineers, et cetera, without obvious comorbidities, and they still have really striking cognitive symptoms. So I think it cuts both ways, both that um, there are people with obvious vulnerabilities and, and not surprisingly, those vulnerabilities have been exacerbated by long COVID and people who were hugely healthy before who are confused and befuddled as in what on earth happened to me, right? Like I used to run marathons, now I can hardly get off the couch. So we've seen both extremes and then everything in the middle. Now from a microbiology uh, perspective, what is it about this virus do they think that is so different than the flu, for example, when it comes to this, this uh, prolonged post condition? It's a good question. And I don't know that people know the answer. I think one thing that has emerged as an insight during this season is that perhaps during the great flu, right, the great pandemic of the 1920s or the teens, whenever it was, um, you know, if you look at the, the literature that was generated in those days, such as it was, you can see the fingerprints of what we might call long COVID. You know, we've studied people with influenza in the hospital um, who have really adverse outcomes. So I think the question that that remains unanswered is to what extent is COVID different than, than you know, other viral conditions, if you will? To what extent is it quite similar, but the denominator is so much larger and we're seeing more of it, right? So I, I don't know that we know the answer to that. I just know that um, there are so many examples of um, high functioning people whose lives are vastly different that um, is clearly a real phenomenon, right? No doubt of that, but, but is it worse than others? Is it not? I don't think we know the answer to that exactly. I think it has, I think it has highlighted an important conversation we need to have about the persistent effects of um, of viruses. Uh, I don't think we probably talked about that quite enough. Now, another thing that was so unique about that particular period in time was the response by a lot of countries. You know, I would argue some did it better than others. Scandinavia, for example, seemed to to fare pretty well. But when you look at the extremes, and you know, the UK was one of them. There's a lot of people, especially if they're in the inner city, that are literally in an apartment, in a flat for weeks, sometimes months at a time, as you said, excluded from family, excluded from friends, um, autonomy is lost. 
And then even from the nutrition side, you know, you, you get fast food delivered to your house and alcohol, you know, and, and binge watching television. So these, these are, you know, th- this whole conversation for me is just, you know, the preventative side. What could we do better next time? How much of that kind of breaking of what would have been traditional tribalism in a positive way, that community, do you think has affected or contributed to the, the psychological impacts that you're seeing through long COVID? Let me ask you this. I just got a text about a clinical emergency I've got to attend to. Go do it. Can we find a way to finish this? Absolutely. And then, that is comes that first. okay? 100%. That's more important. Well, firstly, Jim, you just literally got pulled away to a, you know, psychologically psychiatric emergency. So um, before I kind of revisit that question, I hope everything was okay on that end. It was okay, but uh, but that's actually not that uncommon these days. Uh, and um, I think it highlights it highlights the intensity of difficulty that a lot of people with long COVID have. And uh, I think it intense. I, I think it highlights the 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 magnitude of the need out there. You know, a lot of people have problems finding mental health treatment, finding affordable mental health treatment, and so. We have support groups. We have things of that sort at Vanderbilt that we offer. And um, often we're the only source of support for people. That's not as it should be, but uh, but often it is. And uh, it's a reminder that it's not quite as simple for many as picking the phone up, calling a psychologist and being seen the next day, right? Like that doesn't really happen today um, if you don't have a certain sort of set of resources. So yeah, clinical emergencies happen all the time and i've kind of adapted to that being a part of day-to-day life in this post-covid era well i want to revisit the question i asked before you had to run you know to that emergency just very quickly this is one of the things that i see as the next challenge for the first responder profession there's all this conversation about smash the stigma you know and there's people doing push-ups and all kinds of things and i think okay we we're kind of there now. I think most of us are, you know, are not in too much of an echo chamber have acknowledged that we can also feel the way that we feel. It's not just the military. So uh, we're there, but the huge barrier now, I think, is, is the barrier to entry to finding a culturally competent clinician, especially if someone's in crisis. So when I'm sure that extends, you know, past into the, the civilian world as well, how do we resolve that issue to reduce as many barriers as we possibly can so someone who's either realizing that they're starting to go down that road or god forbid they're very close you know down that road cannot have an eap you know russian roulette experience or or just find themselves on the phone to the wrong person it's a great question uh i mean if we use nashville as as kind of a test case what we have here is we have hundreds and probably thousands of mental health providers, some of them doctoral level, many of them master's level, and probably 85% of those in private practice and probably 99% of the people that you would really want to go see if you needed to, they have opted out of the insurance system completely, right? They've just opted out. And so if you want to see them, um, many of them have waiting lists. And if they don't, um, you know, they're going to charge somewhere between 250 and and perhaps $400 an hour. You're going to find people at 150 But um, 
even people who were quite affluent, that's going to be a, a heavy lift for them, right? It's a big ask for them. And um, it will be a particularly big ask because if I'm in crisis, I need to see you once, yes, but I need to see you more than that, right? So this notion of mental health care, which costs you $800 a month or $1,200 a month or, you know, whatever the case might be for for six months or a year, um, it really isn't very sustainable. So I think in light of that, um, we need to come up with different models, right? And one of those models is um, the use of um, mental, health, mental health apps of different kinds, things like Headspace, um, participation in support groups, and probably the biggest, I think, uh, and unfortunately this shifts the responsibility to the patient, I don't love that, but one of the biggest strategies I think is let's work on self-care and resilience before that happens, right? Before that trauma happens. And then the hope is that um, when that trauma happens, yes, you're still gonna be affected, but you're gonna be less affected than you would have been, right? Because you're building your psychological muscles in advance. So increasingly that's my strategy with people, which is, you know, before the flood comes, let's build that boat as much as we can, right? Let's make sure the hull is airtight. Let's make sure it's not sinking. Let's build the boat. And and part of the way we build that boat, I think, is, and this is something I recommend, let's get in touch with a mental health provider before you need one, right? Let's get in touch with one before you need one. Let's establish a relationship with one before you need one so that, God forbid, if you do need one in a one-off situation, you already have a connection with them. They've got to take your call, right? They've got to see you at the office. And, and even if that's only a one-time thing, there's that connection. When I first suggested that in a forum, a meeting I was at, people sort of scratched their head a little bit as in, gosh, why would I go see a psychologist if I don't need one? But I think we need a little more, James, of a primary care model, right? You establish a connection with your PCP. You might not see them again for a year, right? But they're there if you need them. And I think we need to think about mental health providers the same way. You make a connection, they're there if you need them. So one of the unique things that I've been able to experience through my career as a firefighter is I work for four different departments. Um, I would argue one of the best and one of the worst in America, but also East Coast and West Coast. So I really had a gypsy's perspective. All four of them, we did what they call the psychological test, which from what I understand now is the Minnesota personality, personality interview test. All the basic personality inventory, yeah, MMPI. Yeah, which... In itself, I've been told by many people is not a singular tool to be able to evaluate if someone's going to be a good firefighter or not. And then the polygraph, three of the four did the polygraph, which I realized that you just have to learn how to lie through it because most firefighters have not been choir boys since they were a baby. Right, um, sure. And I'm not belittling that so much as so there's money for both of those. And as you said, in a professional, you know, uh, polygraph or polygrapher or whatever the right term would be, and then a psychologist, you're talking about hundreds of dollars. What I have suggested to a lot of people, just kind of adding on to what you just said, is educating fire departments of the fact that those two are not great ways of deciding if someone's valid for a profession. And actually, the background check and the interview and the physical test and the written test are the real tools. So instead, 
take that money and put it into giving new recruits a counselor five times while they're going through their probation. So ideally with all those firefighters, basically hiring someone to have on staff. Now at the front door, you've normalized the mental health conversation. You've removed the barrier to entry and you've had someone there now that, like you said, God forbid someone goes to a darker place, they have already proactively made a connection with someone. So, And, and the, the money would literally just have to be shifted from one part to another. I, I think that's a really wise suggestion. As it relates to the MMPI, I, I'm not an expert as such on that. But I think there is a broad recognition that um, those tests are used in ways that they were not necessarily designed to be used, right? It's not really intended to be a fitness for duty test, if you will, right? And um, I think that's an example probably of people doing something because they've always done it, right? Why did you do that? Well, I don't know. We always did it. Well, why did you start it? Well, you know, my predecessor did it. I just continued it. So um, I, I think that's right. I mean, so many of the uh, evaluations that we use, the Myers-Briggs would be one. Um, they're not really grounded in the, the strong empirical um, data set, database that we would like. The MMPI is certainly excellent at um, identifying what we call psychopathology of different kinds, but um, turning that into a... Um, a little uh, a, a little test to determine whether you're going to be effective as a firefighter. Not so sure about that. So you're right. I mean, I think we need to be open to taking on a lot of the sacred cows, right? And being very practical um, in in offering help to people. And one of the methods is just what you mentioned: shift some funds, focus on counseling. Another thing I think that is important, whether it is in a you know, firefighting context or a police department context or any context is having leaders who are comfortable talking openly about their own mental health struggles. Because I think when they do that, it gives people, new people to the team, permission to do that themselves. And uh, that's something I advocate all the time. You know, if you're a leader, if you're privileged to be a leader, if you're a leader of men and women, um, talk about your own challenges. Talk about your own challenges and make it as normalized as you can to grapple with depression, to grapple with anxiety, um, to have a history, whatever that history is, right? Normalize it so that people have the space to talk about it and to own it themselves. Now, just to add on as well, what I was going to ask when we, when you got pulled away last time was we talked about obviously the pandemic we talked about covid and, and brain fog and you know long covid um there's a, a guest i had on johan hari who wrote an amazing book on addiction called chasing the scream and one of the quotes in his book is the opposite of connection excuse me the opposite of addiction is not sobriety it's connection now what i witnessed when everything shut down rightly or wrongly depending on each you know geographical place and 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 their kind of makeup was people would rip from their tribes, whether it was family, whether it was friendships, you know, gym communities, jujitsu, you name it. Um, 
with that lens, you know, what did you see as far as as from the mental health perspective, the impact of you know, lockdowns and, and those stringent regulations on the mental health of the, the, the people that you interact with? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. Uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned tribe, the word tribe, because at the time, uh, my wife and I were working out at a gym called Iron Tribe, right? Iron Tribe. And it explicitly is a place where you're called to be part of a tribe, right? It's group workouts, right? It's relationships. And it was um, so profound, Iron Tribe, uh, until it wasn't, right? Until it shut down and you were no longer part of that tribe. And um, I think that was the experience that people had in um, work contexts, in uh, hobby-related contexts, in religious contexts, in so many environments. And I think it, it highlights again the fact that we were really made for community, right? We are designed to be creatures that connect with other people, right? Um, we're at our best when we're engaged with other people. And looking back now, hindsight 2020, looking back now, the, the notion that in our effort to protect ourselves and others, the notion that we weren't going to lose a lot by being so fractured and connected seems um, incredibly silly and naive, right? People were really damaged. And um, we saw the emergence of a mental health crisis that continues to this day, right? Both in terms of um, families, both in terms of children and teenagers who are experiencing record-setting levels of eating disorders, of OCD, of addiction. I mean, we've got a huge problem on our hands. And I think we've got to acknowledge it. The problem is, I think once the genie is out of the bottle, it's a little hard to put it back in, right? And and now that we are so dispersed, we've been so disconnected and we've adopted really a new way of living. Um, excuse me. I think to try to find a way now to re-engage in community is not so simple. So we've talked about obviously some of the issues, um, you know, from the long COVID symptoms to, you know, the mental health impact of the lockdowns themselves. Let's talk about some of the solutions. So I want to get to the book that you've written, obviously, is, is a valuable tool, but also the, the concept of cognitive rehabilitation, whether it's long COVID, whether it's a lot of the people listening, it might be TBIs, it might be the crippling impact of uh, chronic sleep deprivation in my community. So what you know, when people have identified that within themselves, what what is the hope? What are the the uh, the tools that they can use to start getting themselves back to hopefully normal, or as we think we talked about before, a new version of normal? Yeah, sure. So, um, so in the context of cognitive problems that are not dementia, right? Dementia is a different animal because that involves a progression, right? A progression of of um, problems over time. They get worse over time in dementia. So if we put dementia on the shelf for a minute and we think of other cognitive problems that are very significant but not necessarily progressive, um, we tend to think of a solution which is something called cognitive rehabilitation. And cognitive rehabilitation is really a strategy or a series of strategies um, that that don't aim to fundamentally improve your brain per se. That is on an MRI, your brain's not necessarily looking different 
than it did on cognitive rehab. But with cognitive rehab, you're learning to approach problems differently than you did before. You're learning um, to put new tools in your toolbox. You're learning to be more efficient. You're developing um, strategies, internal and external, so that at the end of the day, you're functioning better. That's cognitive rehab. So um, there are simple examples that are that are um, easily understood. One technique we use a lot is simply called stop and think. So just to set this up for a minute, um, many of us, when we're under stress, when we get triggered, uh, when we're worried, when we're anxious, we're prone to making mistakes, right? We're prone to making what neuropsychologists call absent-minded slips. I made one not too long ago when I was at the gas station and um, I was really preoccupied and I wasn't paying attention and I grabbed a hose and I stuck it in my car and I filled my gas tank up with kerosene, not gasoline, kerosene, right? And only after I did it did I realize, oh my gosh, what did you do? Wrecked my car, the whole thing, the car, the car is gone. Um, my mistake, not paying attention, right? And so um, one thing we teach people in, in cognitive rehab is let's begin to understand the rhythms of your life. Let's begin to understand the times and situations where you're likely to make mistakes, right? When you're in a hurry, when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling hungry, you know, when you're feeling angry, whatever. Once you identify those, let's heighten your awareness and let's use that awareness as a tool to help you avoid making those mistakes, right? It's a simple insight. It's really powerful. People write down on a legal pad um, the situations where they're likely to make mistakes and they develop mindfulness, really. They become mindfully aware of the space that they're in. They use a technique called stop and think. They're a little more deliberate. They avoid the mistakes. That That's a simple technique of cognitive rehab, often very powerful. Um, we refer people regularly with cognitive problems of various kinds for rehab to um, a person called a speech and language pathologist, an SLP. Um, that's not a great name, an SLP, because many people with cognitive problems, they don't have issues with speech and language, right, necessarily. So um, I think one of the reasons SLPs are not as popular as they might be is people don't really know what they do. The right way to think of them is they're kind of like a cognitive coach. They're kind of like a brain coach. And when people go see them, they reliably get better. Um, since the start of the pandemic, I've probably referred 100 patients to local SLPs. And in many cases, it really changes their lives um, as they improve their cognitive functioning. Beautiful. Now, I know Mark Watson connected us. Talk to me about you using the ABI Wellness products. Yeah, I love ABI Wellness. I, I love Mark Watson and his... Um, optimism, enthusiasm, um, his big vision for the future. And I love what they're doing at ABI Wellness. Uh, we're in the process of starting a study with them. We haven't started it yet. But um, ABI Wellness is an approach to treating brain injuries that, that doesn't focus as much on compensatory strategies, which I just described, but more on leveraging the brain's natural movement toward neuroplasticity. You know, the idea that 
that I think Mark would articulate if he's here is that the brain has an urge and a desire <coughs> to grow, to reconstitute, right? To improve. And if you create the right conditions for that brain, that brain is going to do that, right? And that's going to result in improved memory, improved executive functioning, improved attention, improved processing speed, ultimately improved function. So um, I'm an optimist, as are the folks at ABI Wellness, that if people get the right rigorous um, brain training done under the right conditions, um, their cognitive capacities on a fundamental level can grow and change and improve. Now, since you and I spoke and now, I actually got introduced to a product called NuCalm as well, N-U-C-A-L-M. Um, and it's the uh, the vibrations that go through a headset, you're listening to music. Um, the the kind of origin story is almost 40 years old. It's amazing how long it took some of the brightest minds on the planet to come up with this. But Ken, who uh, was a TBI survivor himself, was the one that introduced me to it and i've been amazed i've used it my wife's used it um so that's another thing that i've never come across and literally when we first spoke i was oblivious to it that is another tool now as well because it not only deregulates the nervous system so the power there but also can upregulate and i think that i'm assuming is probably some neuroplasticity going on there too i, I think so and i think um you know for a long time it was th th there was a um there was a strong belief set in concrete, right? It was an article of faith that uh, your brain is what it is, right? Where you are is where you're going to be. I think there was really that belief. And in 2023, I think we realized that, that that's just not true, right? That there is a frontier and a paradigm that is bigger and broader, um, more filled with hope and optimism than we thought, and that's reflected, I think, um, in the stories of individual people, at least, who have overcome really significant deficits in the context of their brain injuries, right? People who, in in some cases, had to um, had to sort of build a bridge that they were walking over, right? Uh, you know, without a roadmap. And um, I think those anecdotes remind us that. Um, we tend to limit ourselves too much, I think, when we act like the brain um, cannot grow and improve because there are a lot of people who would disagree with that. And and I know many of them, and, and you probably do too. Absolutely. Well, I know that you wrote the book. So just to make sure we haven't missed anything because obviously there was this pause in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about why you wrote the book. Let's revisit signs and symptoms again and then, you know, talk about that as a solution as well. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I've been working with ICU survivors since around the year 2000. And um, during that time, um, I, I got to know well individuals who had been critically ill in the ICU who had struggles of various kinds and um, started to understand the lay of the land uh, quite thoroughly in the context of what we call post-intensive care syndrome. Um, and when when the pandemic started, um, I started seeing a lot of patients come to my clinic, come to our research program. Uh, they had been in the ICU, not, not with the typical things, not with sepsis, not with ARDS, but they had been in the ICU with COVID, right? And um, I noticed 
that many of the challenges we had seen in ICU survivors in the previous 20 years, these patients had those same challenges. And, and we started working with them in the way that we do. And then uh, before long, we started seeing not just ICU survivors, we started seeing people who had COVID who were never in the hospital, never in the ICU. Um, and sure enough, they had problems too. And um, the problems were in three areas primarily. They were in the area of cognition, they were in the area of physical functioning, which largely included fatigue. They were in the mental health domain and that largely involved um, PTSD, depression, anxiety, sometimes OCD. So um, I was aware in interacting with hundreds and hundreds of these patients that they didn't have much in the way of a resource. Many of them felt incredibly hopeless. There is a pretty dominant narrative out there related to long COVID that nobody gets any better. That felt very discouraging to me and also not true. And so um, I felt like I needed to enter the fray, so to speak, and, and write a book um, which I'm holding here in my hand that, that, that I thought could offer some real hope to people called clearing the fog, um, from surviving to thriving with long COVID practical guide. And when I came up with a title, James, um, I was a little reluctant at first to stay with the words from surviving to thriving, because I, I felt like there would be some people who might be a little critical of that from surviving to thriving. But um, at the end of the day, I kept that title because I, I, I believed and I still believe that um, people with big challenges can thrive, right? They can thrive, whether that's a brain injury, whether that's PTSD due to being a first responder, whether that's long COVID. Um, I just don't think, despite the hard challenges, that we have to throw our hands up and say, you know, all I'll ever do is survive, right? We need to try to find a way to cast a vision for thriving. And so that's what Clearing the Fog does. It's a, it's a very practical step-by-step -step guide that talks about everything from how to advocate for yourself to how to find a provider to how to find the most effective types of mental health treatments to how to develop resilience, how to find acceptance, um, how to engage your family in this long process of recovery. And I've really been heartened by the many people that have responded to me saying, um, you know, this book really hits me where I live and it's making a difference in my life. And I've been grateful for that. Well, I think it's an important resource because as I think we touched on in earlier in the conversation, how I feel it was managed at the end was very much sweep it under the rub let's just forget about it yeah we might be wrong about some some of the things but i don't want to talk about it anymore but that doesn't help the people that are suffering like you said whether it's the mental health ripple effect or whether it's people that actually do have you know physiological long covid and i've, I've got friends of mine that were in the icu that i'm sure don't feel like they're 100 percent now so for people listening where are the best places for them to find it yeah. Uh, Amazon is probably the best place. It's at almost any bookstore. Um, it's at Barnes and Nobles, for instance, and many more. But but you can order it on Amazon. Um, if people have questions about it, if they buy it and have questions, they want to engage me. Um, I'm actually quick to respond to email. I get a lot of emails these days. But but if people email me, I, I'm, I'm glad to email them back. We have a full time social worker in our shop here. So um if people read the book, if they feel like they need to find some mental health providers like we talked about and they feel like they can't, 
Um, we're glad to offer our social work services to help someone find uh, a mental health provider. Um, so yeah, I'm very accessible and the book is too through Amazon. Beautiful. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you. For You talked about your book. Is there a book or are there books written by other people that you love to recommend? It can be related to our conversation today or completely unrelated. Gosh, um, so many books. That, that, that's a that's a hard question, actually, right? Because there are so many. Um, <clears throat> one of the books that has really been impactful to me, uh, and it, it's at the level of organizations, but I think really helpful, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Um, a little bit old and, and a little bit dated now, but um, but about the characteristics that make an organization move from good to great, right? What are those features? Very practical. I really love it. There's another great book, interestingly, um, just called Tribe by um, Sebastian Younger. A uh, famous writer um, talks about his family, talks about the war, but um, on homecoming and belonging, talks about belongingness. Really lovely book. Um, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but um, she has a book that is a synthesis of her other books, and um, it is called Atlas of the Heart. Um, map, mapping meaningful connection and the language of human experience. So um, it's a lot about vulnerability and having the courage um, to live an authentic life. Brene Brown has a quote that I especially like, and, and I imagine you will too. She says, um, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you can't choose both. And, um, and, and that's the essence of the work that she distills calling people to live in courageous ways. The last book I would mention, I mean, we could go on and on and on, so, uh, you know, we won't, but the last book I would mention, um, The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge, D-O-D-I-G-E, -O -D -O -D I, I think, um, a really lovely uh, narrative about um, neuroplasticity and how that has been expressed in the lives of people and important, I think, to have on the bookshelf um, of people who are interested in how their brains can change. Brilliant. Yeah, Tribe has come up over and over and over again. I've had Sebastian on two or three times, I forget, but he's coming back on again in a few weeks because, I mean, every time I circle around with him, he's, you know, he, his revelation has changed even more. So uh, I know that he's yeah. writing another book now. I'm not quite sure what it's about, but I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, I'm quite a fan. I, I've, I've never met him, but he's... Uh, Seems like he's quite a guy, you know, fascinating guy. Absolutely. Well, then what about movies and or documentaries that you love? Oh, gosh. Um, such a good question. Um, silly example, but just last night we watched Driving Miss Daisy and uh, it was lovely to lovely to, to introduce my daughter to it uh, the first time. Um Gladiator, I think, is one of my favorites, right? You know, this powerful story of um, of, of courage and overcoming. Um, that, that would be one. Um, Chariots of Fire would be another. Um, I have a strong Christian faith, and, and this notion of working for the glory of God, in the case of the movie Running, 
is something that that resonates a lot with me. Uh, you know, I'd say to your listeners, um, they have a they may have a faith, they may not. I, I don't think that's the point. Really, the point is um, find a purpose, right? Find a purpose, whatever that might be. Might be God, might not be God. It, it doesn't really matter to me. But find a purpose and then pursue that with a passion, right? And I think at the essence, um, that's what Chariots of Fire is really about. So that's one that stands out. Beautiful. I just interviewed a comedian and he did a breakdown on The Wizard of Oz that I'd never heard before. And it was fascinating. <laughs> like I could have done a whole episode with him just you know, kind of walking me through it. But but yeah, it's interesting hearing and it's been a long time since I've seen Chariots of Fire, so I'm gonna have to revisit that with that kind of in my mind now been a long time it, ha it has been it's been a long time um it's interesting i mean you know so much media currently uh, yeah, i'm not a big critic but but um th there there is so much that i think is less good than it might be and i find it a challenge these days to sort through a lot you know to find the gold nuggets sort of um but but it's out there right it's there's good stuff out there if you if you can take the time to find it. And I think many of us have things, you know, like chariots of fire that have, uh, that have shaped us really deeply. And, and it, it's important, I think, uh, to expose our kids to these sorts of things, right. To great literature, to great movies, to great art. Um, because I think it's, uh, it's really impactful. Uh, Les Miserables, you know, Liam Neeson, another very human story, um, beautiful film. So long list of things that are impactful to me. Absolutely. I wasn't a huge fan of Russell Crowe singing, but apart from that, it was a good film. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I've got a good friend, um, Brian Marks, who is um, one of the world's leading experts in PTSD and very thoughtful, great researcher. Um, he's the creator of an innovative approach to PTSD treatment that um, is really being hailed to a lot of acclaim, and that's called WET, written exposure therapy, written exposure therapy. Okay, interesting. So um, you're familiar probably with PE, prolonged exposure, um, but this is written exposure, and um, it appears to be highly effective um, in treating people with PTSD, no matter what the cause, um, seems to be effective in a very short time frame, actually. So I'd love to put you in touch with Brian, and you would enjoy getting to know him. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Well, well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? It's really interesting you say that, uh, you know, we have all these support groups and um, and last week someone in one of the support groups um, sent an email to my to my close colleague and coordinator, Amy, and she said, you know, I'm really worried about Dr. Jackson. Uh, that, that's what the email said. I'm really worried about Dr. Jackson. And, uh, you know, I'm functioning just fine. Actually, I'm doing fine. But his his observation was gosh, he is really busy and he's taking care of a lot of patients and it doesn't seem like he's taking care of himself. And, um, and gosh, I get that, right? I get that. And, and I think, um, I think it's interesting, 
you know, you can burn out a couple different ways, right? You can burn out trying to achieve and you can burn out in the context of achieving a lot, right? And um, in my case, especially in the last couple of years, uh, my team and I, we've been fortunate to achieve a lot and um, and that's a blessing, but suddenly you're responsible for all these people, right? You're leading all these programs and people are sending you emails literally from all over the globe and it's a challenge. So I say that to say I've been mindful in a new way um, of the need to take good care of myself and um, to decompress, I, I do a number of things. I love to go fishing. I don't do much catching as they say, but I love to go fishing, um, love to go hiking um, spend a lot of time with my wife uh, at the park in in Nashville, listening to music. They have a lot of events here with singers and songwriters. Um, I've taken up running. I just ran a, a a 5K yesterday. It's it's sad that it's come to the place where that's good progress for me, but but it's baby steps. So um, I'm taking self care really seriously, and I would invite your listeners to do the same. You know, it 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 isn't a panacea it won't solve everything but it is a rhythm that we need to build into our lives it's a rhythm that um that can help protect us against stress and to a certain extent against trauma and i highly recommend it i was amazed when i shifted over to doing this full time um Obviously, there's vicarious trauma when we're on on the scenes, and I actually just passed an incident. I hope I was wrong. It looked like it was a a fatality on the road right when I left my jiu-jitsu school today, but hopefully it wasn't as bad as it looked. But um, you know, that would be something. Like, okay, that's that's you know, obviously traumatic. But then as I progress through, and I'm doing this, and I'm listening to you know, sometimes people literally pour out their heart. It's amazing the trust, but that vicarious trauma in that way. And there's times where I'm like, oh. Oh, my cup is <laughs> is really, really full, and I need to hit the pause button for a bit. Talk to me about that through your lens, because again, I mean, you got the business side, you're managing all that, you've written a book, but then halfway through our interview, you have to hang up and go and be that person for someone in crisis. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, I, I think um, I think for me, I, I deal with that um, by trying to really engage in my downtime with a lot of deliberate effort, if you will. You know, there's a great book, speaking of, you know, list of books, there's a great book old now called The Power of Full Engagement, written by a, a sports psychologist, business psychologist named Jim Lore. And the idea is that success comes not so much through managing time, but through managing energy. And the point is that that when you're at work, you need to sort of be at work, right? You engage work. And when you're not at work, um, you need to really be not at work, right? You need to be not at work. You need to be engaging that other part of you, right? And um, so so I do try hard to take care of myself so that um, my cup will be a little more full when I get a call out of the blue. Uh, I was hiking not too long ago, um, watching some armadillos on, on a little mountain not too far from here, having a great day, got a call, looked at the number, recognized that it was one of my patients. They were really in crisis, right? And you get snapped right into duty, so to speak. So I do think, um, 
I, I, I do think building your reserves up is really important. I also think it's important with humility to take feedback from people um, and to seek out feedback about how you're doing, right? Like, how am I managing? And I ask my team that. I ask my wife that. Um, you know, when I'm grumpy at home, when I'm sterner than usual, when I'm a little harsh, when I'm critical, all things that I'm not normally, right? Those are those are warning signs that something is going a little bit awry, right? When I'm gaining some weight because I'm stress eating like crazy, right? And that's how I'm managing. Those are warning signs. So I look for those warning signs. And the goal, I think, is... Hey, when you notice those, start trying to address that, right? Start trying to change that behavior. Go back to your therapist. I've got one, you know, uh, in the queue, so to speak. They're there if I need them. Um, it, it's really important. But having people in your life who are not just syncophants, who will tell you honestly how you're doing, tell you if you're screwing up, tell you if you're slipping. I think that's one of the most important things we can do. That was an observation I had because in the fire station, you know, we'll we'll talk to each other, but we're all in the same barrel. We're all in the same meat grinder. So how are you doing? Well, I'm fine. Yeah, because you're just as beat down as I am. So having the humility to ask, like you said, the family, my wife, my children, you know, like, do I see more on edge? You know, that was a huge kind of wake up call. Okay, okay, yeah. Ask your crew. I mean, don't don't discount that. But ask a group that doesn't see you, you know, or isn't in, like I said, that meat grinder with you. Ask someone from the outside and even better, uh, maybe, you know, a parent or someone who you don't see every single day, but you've seen two weeks ago, a month ago, because they'll be like, holy shit, you look awful. (laughs) That's a pretty good barometer. Okay, maybe I need some more sleep and and some uh, some me time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, I think the point would be if you're going to ask that question have the integrity to really grapple with what the answer is, right? If the answer is not what you want, right? Have the integrity to deal with that, uh, to deal with it courageously, right? And take whatever action you need to take. Um, We can deceive ourselves very easily, right? So getting feedback from other people and being receptive to it. it, The red ink, as my colleague Wes Seeley likes to say, you know, being willing to get that red ink and being willing to make changes, it's really important. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the final question, if people want to reach out to you and online or social media, where are the best places to find you? Yeah, I am on Twitter um, at, at Dr. Jim Jackson. Um, I, uh, I'm i on LinkedIn. Uh, I think Dr. James C. Jackson, probably. But the, the, if people really want to engage me, the easiest thing to do is send me an email. That sounds very old fashioned, actually. But um james.c.jackson at v-u-m-c vanderbilt university medical center v-u-m-c.org they can find me on twitter they can find me on tiktok um making videos about mental health but send me an email and um i will follow up one of the things that i've noted that has been really sad to me um when we get emails we respond to them you know we respond to them all the time feel like i feel like it's the least i can do and so often when we respond, patients say, oh, my gosh, nobody ever responds. Like no doctor that I send an email to ever responds. And uh, and I think often they don't. And it's really sad, right? That's what things have come to. It's really sad. So if you send me an email, I'll respond. And if your listeners 
um, have a need that we can help meet, we'll try to connect them with resources as we're able to. Beautiful. Well, Jim, we finally managed to do it. I want to thank you. We did. <laughs> thank you so, so much for coming on. I mean, what you know, your area of expertise, and especially obviously the narrower focus of the post-COVID issues, I think is invaluable. And again, this whole show is not about bitching about things it's pulling problems out of the yeah, shadows absolutely sure. but then yeah. bringing solutions which is you know what you've done with the book and and your work so i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show yeah well next time you're in nashville if you are in nashville let's get together